And the best part of doing a podcast is a backlog. For the first time since I started this show, I've finally been able to record more than one episode in a week. And so this one is going to get edited and then saved. And then on weeks where I am fighting and struggling with my mental health, I will drop this episode and still feel proud and secure that I did in fact have an episode recorded when I'm too depressed to, you know, take a shower. So yeah, I'm pretty stoked about that. Welcome to Red Leg Revolution, a show about community. I'm Cannabis Dubs. That's that's the C for this week, because we're talking about drugs on Red Leg Revolution, which is a show about community. Why are we talking about drugs? Well, drugs affect our community in many different ways, some good, some bad. There are some positives to how humans consume substances to alter their physical and mental state. There are also a lot of negatives, as humans tend to have... A lot of humans tend to have very addictive personalities, and drug use can really damage your life. So I want to make it very clear from the get-go that while we'll be talking about drugs, I fully support any of my comrades or friends who are choosing to live their life sober. I believe in you, I have faith in you, and please don't think me spending, I don't know, an hour or so talking about drugs is any type of judgment on people who have decided to live their life without drugs because predominantly the people I know at least who are living the sober life have already lived a life in active addiction and as such they know what I'm talking about even if they've realized that their life is probably better without substances. So yeah, we'll talk a little about drugs. There's No real driving factor for me wanting to do an episode about drugs outside of the fact that, first of all, in my trailer I did years ago now, I said that we would cover them. So here we are in the second season, gonna talk a little bit about drugs. I also wanted to bring up drugs for another reason. As fans of the show know, I did years of cannabis legalization activism in the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, and it was how I got into more broad activism when I started to learn how our drug laws tie into everything else that's going on wrong in the world. It kind of helped open my eyes and radicalize me. I'm also wanting to talk about drugs today because In less than a month, I believe, the recreational cannabis system in Missouri is supposed to be uh, going and progressing to where anyone can go to Missouri and buy some cannabis, which is a drug. So, So, yeah, there's a couple reasons I wanted to do a drug episode, but that's that's why we're there. So, let's start off what is a drug? I think we all pretty much know that a drug is a substance that we can ingest or inhale or shoot up or take anally. Yes, a lot of drugs you can take up the bum and it will alter your consciousness and your perception and your bodily responses. So what is what is a drug, right? If we're going by that exact definition, which I believe is a pretty clinical one, 
then we have to acknowledge that drugs are more than the illicit ones that we've been taught by programs like D.A.R.E. or our square parents that are bad. Things like marijuana, hallucinogens like psilocybin or LSD, uh, stimulants like cocaine. We have opiates, which are a big problem. Also like heroin and opium. But I, we really don't talk about how we classify drugs and how we try to pretend like certain types of drugs are bad and certain types of drugs are good. For example, all those drugs I just listed are considered bad. They are scheduled under federal law and various schedules that basically say the average layman is not allowed to get these substances. And at Schedule 1, where a lot of those drugs reside, nobody can get them, not even doctors to do research that might prove that they shouldn't be in a Schedule 1. Schedule 1 is drugs, federally speaking, are drugs that have no medical value and a high possibility for addiction. So if you're not going to give the scientists access to the drugs to do the science to prove that these drugs are not addictive or have very big therapeutic value, then I really don't trust on your, on your basic method of, of classifying these drugs, right? And so we also don't think of certain things that are drugs as drugs. Let's go through my day this morning. I woke up this morning, I made a pot of coffee. I did drugs as soon as I woke up. As I was drinking my coffee, I went outside and smoked a cigarette. I was doing drugs when I woke up. I took my medication for my head, for my uh, mental illness. I'm still doing drugs, right? If I were to take a Adderall because I have ADHD and that's what's prescribed, that's a stimulant. And Adderall, there's a lot to be said about the misconceptions of pharmaceutical stimulants compared to, like, methamphetamine. We're not going to get all into that today, okay? There's a lot of ground we can cover on this subject, and just like the sex episode we did recently, this is probably going to be a subject that we come back and touch on multiple times because it is such a big episode, or big subject, Y'all, y'all know what I get, what I'm getting at. So, the way we classify drugs definitely influences how we view drugs, and not just how the federal government actually classifies drugs, also how we as a culture have been taught and then perpetrate the classification of drugs. This is the same culture that makes it to where certain subsets of people say that cannabis has no medical value, but will then go and take a bunch of pills. I also want to make it very clear at the top of the episode, I am on medication for my mental health. I have no, I'm not an anti-medication type guy. I think that there's a lot of benefit 
to our pharmaceuticals that we've come out. I'm also kind of holistic where I can be. If there's something that I can just take some root or bark or something and get the same effect, I'd prefer to do that. But I'm not the type of guy who's going to sit here and tell you all pharmaceutical drugs are bad or that if you have a mental illness, you don't need to take your drugs. That's between you and your doctor. So I just wanted to like get that clear because I will probably be referring back to pharmaceutical medications a lot. So we view things like pharmaceutical medication or coffee or even cigarettes to a degree as not drugs. And even though like it's not, it's a food and it's a food compound, I think there's a really strong argument to be made to say that the excessive amounts of sugar that we currently ingest as humans is is drug is a drug because when we were primal and hunters and all that sugar was not something that we got in such large doses and it definitely changes our brain chemistry and how we process things so by my definition even sugar's a drug so it's important to really identify what we're talking about when we're talking about what is a drug one thing that's always, always got me angry on this subject is when I was growing up and I went through the D.A.R.E. program, I was one of the last generations of, of young adult Americans who got to actually see real drugs in the classroom. I remember when they passed around a small baggie of marijuana and I remember freaking out because it was all propaganda and I was hyped at the crack epidemic. I was being indoctrinated to support some very racist bad policies that we may or may not touch on but regardless i hated the fact they always phrased it drugs and alcohol because alcohol is a drug alcohol is one of the oldest drugs that mankind ever invented we were probably smoking weed before then and probably eating random mushrooms we find trying to figure out which ones will kill us and which ones we can eat and in that process we probably tripped a few times but there's a big argument and a uh, anthropological argument to say that we actually developed farming technologies because we had accidentally brewed fermented beverages and wanted more so alcohol is one of the oldest drugs that mankind has ever used and now in a society where alcohol is somewhat accepted and we have big beer companies and big liquor companies and big wine companies who are donating money to continue this narrative that alcohol is is fine but all these other intoxicants aren't and that's directly because it's a challenge to alcohol like, I know a lot of people who would rather go smoke a joint than go have a beer, but depending on where they live, they may very well have a beer just because it's what won't get them fired or evicted or arrested. As you all know, I live in Kansas. We are one of the states that has really bad cannabis laws, and we've been working on that since I was in my... 20s and we haven't made a whole lot of progress there even though there are some groups who are doing great work in that regard and Laura Kelly our governor has vocalized that maybe we should be getting some of this weed money that every other state around us is getting so yeah I just wanted to kind of like establish what are we what are we talking about when we talk about drugs and how that might be 
might play into everything else we're about to talk about. So, yeah, let's let's get into the meat of this. So, first off, drug prohibition in America, particularly, started with marijuana. Well, it started with alcohol, by our own definition, in the 20s with the Prohibition Amendment. I didn't do any research regarding alcohol prohibition. I think the information is pretty well out there, and if you need a primer course, I recommend the awesome educational video, uh, which I believe is called Homer versus the 18th Amendment, which is a Simpsons episode about prohibition. So yeah, if you want to learn about about alcohol prohibition, you should go watch that, and leave me alone. You all have access to the same internet and books that I do. If you want to learn more about that, then that's your homework. Go do it. So we're talking about marijuana prohibition, and that started in the 30s in America, and we're going to get into why here for a minute. So from an article on History.com published August 4th, 2017, titled Why the U.S. Made Marijuana Illegal, Fear of Mexican Immigrants Led to the Criminalization of Marijuana by Becky Little. Quote, Anglo-Americans and Europeans have known about marijuana's medical benefits since at least the 1830s. Around that time, Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, an Irish doctor studying in India, documented that cannabis extracts could ease cholera symptoms like stomach pain and vomiting. By the late 19th century, Americans and Europeans could buy cannabis extract in pharmacies and doctors' offices to help with stomach aches, migraines, inflammation, insomnia, and other ailments. So like I said... <clears throat> Humans have been using cannabis for literally thousands of years, probably since time immemorial. And a big reason that humans are naturally drawn to cannabis is we have something what's called an endocannabinoid system. I'm sure a lot of you know what this is due to the increasing legality of weed and the knowledge of things like CBDs and CBNs and all that. So I just want to touch on briefly that Again, there's a reason humans do this. So this is from an article on uh, health.harvard.edu, and it's just going to give us a brief overview of the endocannabinoid system. So many of us have heard of some of the transmitter systems within our bodies, such as the sympathetic nervous system, which gives us our fight-or-flight response. Few have heard of the more recently discovered endocannabinoid system, which is amazing when you consider that the endocannabinoid system is critical for almost every aspect of our moment-to-moment -moment functioning. The ECS regulates and controls many of our most critical bodily functions, such as learning and memory, emotional processing, sleep, temperature control, pain control, inflammatory and immune responses, and eating. The ECS is currently at the center of renewed international research and drug development. So, right there you can probably make some quick connections to see why medical marijuana is a thing and how it actually might help out. So, back when we were in a more primal point in our life, we were eating hemp seed as well as the meat we were eating was eating wild hemp. So, we were naturally getting these endocannabinoids that were helping our functioning and then we were able to get them throughout the world throughout history because marijuana is a very pervasive I won't say invasive but pervasive crop 
and we were still able to kind of like fulfill that cannabinoid system particularly because again the animals that we were eating were eating wild hemp and then we arbitrarily decided to criminalize marijuana and suddenly we didn't have these things so now we're now we're reconnecting to our body and to nature and what what we're supposed to be doing you know so why was marijuana made illegal well we're going to go back to that article by becky little so quote the prejudice and fears that greeted these peasant immigrants mexicans also extended to their traditional means of intoxication smoking marijuana schlosser wrote for the atlantic in 1994 Police officers in Texas claimed that marijuana incited violent crimes, aroused a lust for blood, and gave its users superhuman strength. Rumors spread that Mexicans were distributing this killer weed to unsuspecting American schoolchildren. End quote. So, again, I'm not trying to get too much into the weeds, particularly because I have a lot of ground I want to cover in this episode. But yeah, the original marijuana prohibition laws were made because there was an influx of Hispanic laborers and the powers that be did not like that. But they, at the time, couldn't just criminalize being Hispanic, so they criminalized elements of their culture, including cannabis. At the same time, in the eastern part of the United States, African Americans who were relocating... due to the great migration and such and bringing their culture with them such as jazz also had an element of cannabis culture in it and they would smoke weed too so it was a way that they could criminalize both people of latin origin and black people at the same time and help keep them all down and so it started in the 30s we had things like reefer madness a lot of really absurd quotes about cannabis from the the predecessor to the DEA and some more homework for y'all I don't want to get too enraged so y'all should look up who Harry J Anslinger was and because he's he's the guy that we have marijuana prohibition because of so so yeah it was based in racial injustice in the first place and the fact that we still hold on to it is pretty ridiculous. Let's, uh, let's jump back into this article a little more. Quote, The federal government and states continued to increase punishments related to, to marijuana until the late 1960s, when the law began to touch on white, upper-middle-class college students who were smoking the drug. During the mid-1970s, virtually all states softened penalties for marijuana possession, reports the New York Times. However, the federal government continued to cling, as it does today, to a policy that has its origins in racism and xenophobia, and whose principal effect has been to ruin the lives of a generation of people. End quote. Again, what kind of people? Predominantly people of color. I mean, don't get me wrong, marijuana prohibition is one of those things that affects white people as well because cops suck but if you look at the statistics which i do not have you will see that there is a very big disparity in who gets arrested for marijuana whose cases actually go through the system for marijuana and who actually serves time for marijuana and here's a spoiler it's generally not white people so yeah 
that's why marijuana is illegal. And again, I don't think I'm probably telling telling you guys anything that you didn't already know. So just thought we'd kind of go over that. And we are going to take a short break and go ahead and do some ads in here. I'm not saying I would smoke a big fatty with the skunk ape, but maybe I would smoke a fatty with the big skunk ape. So, yeah, check out these ads. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the current legality of marijuana. So, we'll be right back. Ads. I just got my hours cut again. How can I pay my bills? Yeah, it sucks, especially since they only pay us minimum wage. But what can we do? Solidarity Man. That's right, fellow workers. It is I, Solidarity Man, champion of the working class, and it sounds like you need a union. A union? That's right. What power on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? So a union makes us strong? That's right. Alone, you can do little to change your situation, but together you can move mountains, and the industrial workers of the world are here to help. Huh? The IWW is a union for all workers, no matter the trade, job, or career. And we want to organize your workplace. Wow, where can we find the IWW? In your hometown. The IWW has branches all over the world. Check out IWW.org to find your local membership board or join as an at-large member and start your own chapter. After all, our greatest superpower is working together. I must go. I hear another exploited worker calling for help. But remember, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. Away! Hey, capitalism sucks, but Revolution Records, Kansas City's old-school record and bookstore, is part of my community. When I'm in Kansas City and need a book or a copy of a local band's album, I go to Revolution Records. Revolution has a great selection of posters, books, records, tapes, and zines. Plus, they repair music and sound gear. That's pretty dope. Most importantly, Revolution Records is part of the community beyond being a small business. The staff does a great job maintaining an inclusive, accepting, and respectful atmosphere, and they also are active in making Kansas City a better place. Community fundraisers, workshops, events, and meetings all have taken place at Revolution Records, and that's just the stuff I was involved in. So the next time you need a new record to spin or your speaker breaks, go check out Revolution Records, located 1830 Locust Street, Kansas City, Missouri, or at revolutionrecordskc.com. Deep in the swamps of Florida. Honey, is that a new plant? He dwells, waiting. Where did those seeds come from, honey? Silently. Oh my god, what is that thing? Sending seeds and stickers across the country. Ah! And spreading solidarity. Have you lost your mind, honey? We can't move to a sustainable commune in upstate New York. What's wrong with you lately? There's no stopping him. The Mighty Skunk Ape is on Facebook, and he's on a mission. Anarchy! No! Coming to a post office box near you, the Skunk Ape Liberation Union. And we are back. I stepped outside during that commercial break to do some drugs and smoked a cigarette and side note while I was there the first thing that came up on my Facebook was an article from vice.com titled my AI is sexually harassing me replica users say the chat box 
our chatbot has gotten way too horny. We're not going to talk any more about that. I just thought that was amusing. And you should go read the article about the creepy, aggressive sex bot that is on vice.com. So, yeah, we're talking about drugs and marijuana in particularly at the moment. So I wanted to touch on real quick how we are doing with the legality of marijuana now that we understand where these bullshit laws come from. Obviously, there's been a cultural shift in the past 10-15 years. We've seen a wave of various loosening of marijuana restriction from simple CBD, which is how Kansas has it, to full-blown legalization, how... Colorado and now Missouri has it. So I've got an article here from CNET that was published on January 3rd, 2023, titled Marijuana Laws by State, Where is Weed Legal? So, quote, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures, 21 states have legalized the adult use of marijuana for recreational purposes. Alaska, Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Nevada, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington. Holy shit, I didn't know Montana had full legalization. I'm going to have to, my next trip up to the Black Hills, I'm probably going to have to spend some more time in Montana. Regardless, back to that article. Quote, Adult use marijuana is also legal in the District of Columbia, Guam, and the Northern Mariana Islands. In Connecticut, retailers will be allowed to begin selling cannabis products to all adults, 21 or over, on January 10th. Adults in Missouri have been able to legally possess marijuana for recreational purposes since December 8th, but sales at state-approved dispensaries won't begin until February at the earliest, according to the state's Department of Health and Senior Services. Recreational sales will become legal in Maryland on July 1. The lawmakers are not expected to determine regulation for sales and taxation by then. A referendum in Oklahoma on recreational marijuana will be the subject of a special election in March. So, okie homies, I'm sure you're already doing, well, first off, end quote. So, yeah, okie homies, go out there and do whatever you can to make that pass, because as we know, marijuana prohibition is is racist and detrimental and and all that. But it is nice to see that we've seen this cultural shift in the past 15, 20 years. When I first started doing marijuana activism in 2008, I you couldn't just say, like doing a podcast like this and saying, oh yeah, I smoke weed. You wouldn't do that. You were paranoid as hell. It was understandable unless you were in the few states that had loosening restrictions like Colorado or California. And we were all a lot more, I think, paranoid about it. As a Kansan living in a state where it is still prohibited, there's still that element of paranoia, but it's definitely less so. And it's really heartening to be able to look around and see that all these states in the United States you can smoke weed now, and it's less of an issue. At the same time, we still have issues with prohibition, not only in states where it's not legal, but with the federal government being wishy-washy insofar as how it's going to enforce prohibition and how that policy is set by advisors to the president. So if the president changes, those policies can change. Under Obama, we had the Cole memo that told his Department of Justice that they wouldn't 
raid dispensaries in states where marijuana was medically legal. The DEA did anyway, but there was a little sigh of relief when Obama was in office and then Trump came to office and was like, mm, we're not we're not doing that anymore. I again, it's been years since I've done marijuana activism, so I don't have all this research off the top of my head for the past decade, but the DEA changes and changes, heads change, Department of Justice changes, heads change, how things are prosecuted changes, and it's all dependent on who's president, but so far, no president has made any real effort to legalize marijuana. Joe Biden was very much against the concept of legalizing marijuana when he was on the campaign trail. I am not sure where he stands right now, but I do know I haven't seen any headlines saying Joe Biden instructs his Department of Justice to drop all marijuana cases. There were some pardons, I believe, uh, a few months ago, but again, no actual systemic policy change. So, but it's still cool to look around at the culture now and have more people understand that just because somebody gets off work and goes home and smokes a joint instead of having a few beers doesn't make them a useless person. It doesn't make them a quote unquote addict. It doesn't make us do criminal behaviors. It and it helps. It helps medically. I'm I'm a firm believer that all recreational marijuana use is medical in a way because as we've talked about before on the show how how bad stress can impact our cognitive function, our physical existence, all that. So anything you can do that's harm reduction such as smoking weed. Yeah, smoking plant matter is probably not good for your lungs, but if you're going to do a drug, I think you should probably ingest marijuana in some way, shape, or form. Again, not saying everybody should, but those of us who are inclined to do substances, that should be your first go-to. And also, I want to make it clear, I'm not one of those guys that's like, everybody should smoke marijuana, and if you have anxiety from marijuana you just haven't had the right strain like that's that's bullshit some people their endocannabinoid systems misfire we don't know enough about it to know what may cause these things but currently at the end of the day some people shouldn't smoke marijuana just like some people shouldn't drink or shouldn't do any other drugs so i don't want to say this is a blanket statement but yeah it's cool to see that the the culture is changing so we talked a little about how we define drugs and how we leave out alcohol and tobacco. I want to go ahead and mention some death total totals from those because we just spent some time talking about marijuana and counting just ingesting, all right? This isn't counting people driving while stoned and getting in accidents or, well, really that's the only thing I can think of that might kill you while you're doing smoking weed. I mean, I guess smoking weed and getting lost in a national park, but I've never had that happen, and I allegedly have done that more than once. So, just talking about actual ingesting, marijuana has killed zero people in the history of of documentation. It would take 2,000 pounds or so for uh, someone to die of a marijuana overdose. There's an old joke in the legalization community that it'll take 2,000 pounds of marijuana to kill you and it's got to be dropped from a height of 50 feet. So let's compare that to these numbers from the Center for Disease Control. 
Excessive alcohol use was responsible for more than 140,000 deaths in the United States each year during 2015 through 2019, or more than 380 deaths per day. Cigarette smoking is estimated to be the, to cause the following, more than 480,000 deaths annually, including deaths from secondhand smoke, 278,544 deaths annually among men, including deaths from secondhand smoke, 201,773 deaths annually among women, including deaths from secondhand smoke. So as we can see from those numbers from the CDC, alcohol and tobacco are two real big killers in the United States, but they're not regulated well, I guess regulated is a poor choice of words. They're not prohibited like all sorts of other drugs. And that is a direct cause of those being regulated industries that are able to influence our political sphere with things like bribes and kickbacks and campaign donations. So despite them being damaging, they still get to exist and be part of our culture. And that's a big reason that we, not to go back on it too much, but we do the whole drugs and alcohol thing. We just want to pretend like these drugs are okay and these drugs aren't. And that's a problem because when we do that, then we start to run into the big issues behind drug prohibition in the first place. So one of those big issues is the disparity, I think I touched on this earlier, about who gets arrested for drugs. Last time I looked at these numbers, people who were arrested for marijuana possession were 13 times more likely to not be white, despite the fact that white people and black people and brown people use marijuana nowadays in about the same rates. It was 13 times more likely that a person of color would be arrested and processed and incarcerated for marijuana. And these sentencing disparities exist in other realms. So I'm not sure if you all know about the crack cocaine disparity when the crime bill came down in the during the Reagan-fueled crack epidemic, which I, I don't know if that should even be called an epidemic, seeing as though Reagan and Ollie North and George Bush and all those guys were directly feeding in the cocaine needed. But at the height of it when they wrote that bill crack cocaine was sentenced at a disparity of a hundred times to one so one gram of powder cocaine that was predominantly used by upper middle class white people would snag the hold on one gram of crack which was used predominantly by low-income people would snag the same sentence as 100 grams of co powder cocaine, which was primarily used by upper-middle-class people. So if we look at that, we can see directly that they were trying to jail people who came from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, who came from families of color, and it was a way of control. They didn't want to piss off, just like the marijuana laws, they didn't want to piss off the rich white people. It's a tightrope walk for them. How can we criminalize drugs without actually criminalizing the people that we want in society? And I want to make that clear. That's their thoughts, not, not mine. <laughs> I, I like all people in my society. So 
Another reason we have these not only disparities in sentencing, but the fact that these laws have stayed on the books for as long as they have is because the United States has been going over the past 50, 60 years to a private prison model where individual private entities who operate for profit are contracted by the state to build and maintain private prisons. I know quite a bit about building private prisons. Uh, one of my last union jobs before I quit being a carpenter was building the new Lansing wing at Lansing Prison, and that was a very freaky experience. Maybe I'll talk about it in a future show. But I was able to see how these big companies like Core Civic, who operates most of the private prisons, operate. And during that time, I did a lot of research as to how, how private prisons basically extort society into keeping them full. You see, private prisons will sign contracts with cities, and they'll say things like, yeah, we'll feed the inmates, this is how many inmates we'll take, yada yada. But oftentimes there are clauses in there that say if the beds aren't full in the prison and the core civic company is not making any money, then the city has to pay them rebates for maintaining those beds. So it's in the government's best interest to make sure these beds are full so that they're getting paid, not they're paying the contractor. So in order to keep these private prisons full, we criminalize all sorts of human behavior. It's not just drugs. Prostitution and gambling are two other ones that come to my mind. I haven't heard of anybody recently getting busted for illegal gambling, but I know it's out there. And prostitution, we're not touching that one with the 10-foot pole till I get a sex worker on here. So bottom line is we criminalize a lot of basic human behaviors to try to keep these private prisons full and then they have a vested interest in being full so the private prisons work alongside the government to try to craft and develop prohibition laws to enact or keep existing prohibition laws active to fight back against any attempt at the loosening of these laws it's it's a big circle because, you know, if you happen to go to prison because you're a black person and got caught smoking a joint and they throw a couple other bullshit charges at you just because you're a black person and it's the system and they know they can get away with it, then you go to prison. Even if it's, you know, six months or so, you go to prison and there's all sorts of studies and statistics that show that once you're in the system, you're more than likely going to stay in the system your entire life. So when you get out of prison, again, for smoking weed, you can't find a job very easily because you're a felon. You can't find housing very easily because you're a felon. You can't really crash with your friends because now you're on probation. They were all people that you knew before you went in. So more than likely, you're going to end up having to do some sort of criminal act to exist. And then they catch you again, and then they send you to prison for a little longer. And then the cycle repeats itself, except each time they catch you, there's more and more time added because now you're considered a repeat offender. So we have to break this wheel. And one of the ways that we can do that is by legalizing drugs. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fucked up. So I also think we need to take a minute in here to talk a little bit about harm reduction. I'm 
briefly touched on this earlier. Harm reduction is, okay, for the example I used earlier, there's a certain type of people, myself included, who are predisposed to altering our consciousness in some way. I believe, I don't have studies, this is my opinion, but I believe this is rooted in our past experiences, our traumas, our shitty upbringings, our generational trauma, but there is a subset of people who will always try to seek out to change their their mind frame. I'm one of them. So when I was about 18 or 19 was about the first time I ever smoked pot, and I also was drinking pretty heavily back in those days. And I remember making a cognizant decision of, I know I'm going to do something every day because I can't live. I'm, I was horribly depressed. I was really su suicidal most of the time. So I needed something to help me blow off steam. And the two things available to me at the time were alcohol and cannabis. And I realized very quickly that when I drank, I woke up the next morning and felt like shit and didn't want to go to work or do anything. But if I got real stoned the night before, the worst thing I had to deal with when I woke up after a wonderful night's sleep was still feeling a little stoned when I woke up. And then that just kind of tapered off and I'd be able to go about my day. So for me, it was harm reduction to decide I would rather smoke weed than drink on a regular occasion. And I kept that going for years. And harm reduction can be a lot of things. It can be just picking a substance that's going to do the least amount of damage, or it could be doing methadone instead of heroin. Harm reduction can be things like, or is things like testing any illicit substances you get to make sure they're not laced with anything else and they are what you got. There's a lot of elements to harm reduction. And for me, a key of it is the concept that we can totally do drugs and we can do them in ways that are safe for us and our community. Again, this isn't a blanket statement. There are people who have difficulty doing drugs in a safe way. There are definitely ways that doing drugs impacts our community. But at the same time, there are ways that one can ingest substances and not be a danger to themselves or other. And so I think it's important that if you're going to choose to do illicit substances, which for legal purposes, I advise against wink, wink, but if you're going to do that, it's in your own best interest as well as the community's best interest to find a way that you can do these substances and be safe about it. You know, it's the equivalent to being like having a trip sitter if you're going to take a bunch of LSD or having a sober friend drive you home. This is all harm reduction. And there's a lot of ways that we can do this human, perfectly human thing of wanting to feed our heads, to quote the old White Rabbit song. So just do it safe. Do it so you don't hurt your community. And, you know, I also think it needs to be mentioned real quick that I am not really touching on the subject of addiction in this episode. I want to acknowledge that that is a thing that we need to discuss and it needs to have a part in this overarching discussion about drugs and drug policy and all that. I I don't really feel right talking about addiction just like sex work. I 
I have my own addictions, but I would rather talk to one of my many comrades who have fought and overcame some addictions to some substances harder than caffeine and nicotine. Which doesn't say those aren't addictive, but I don't know. It seems like it's easier to detox and still be part of society when you're coming down off off of caffeine. So, But it needed to be mentioned. And again, I greatly support my friends who are in active recovery. You're doing a great job, and I'm proud of you. So... But yeah, we'll, we will revisit the addiction topic, and it'll probably be its own its own show by itself because there's a lot of different forms of addiction. They're not all based in drugs and alcohol. So and that, that's also one that's going to require me to actually write a full script and do a lot of research. So just hold your feet for it. Hold your feet. Hold your hat. Yeah. Hold your horses. Hold something i don't know i i lost my train of thought so the last thing i really wanted to touch about kind of goes back to like with marijuana is that there are a lot of therapeutic uses for a lot of things that we currently criminalize particularly in the hallucinogen category as we've talked about there's medical uses for marijuana there's actually medical uses for cocaine, there's medical uses for heroin, there's medical uses for methamphetamine. I'm not saying these are the best practices. I think that we've developed better pharmaceutical things to take place of like cocaine as a analgesic, as for heroin as a, um, shit, I can't even remember what we used to use heroin for because we used it for pretty much everything. And we have pharmaceutical stimulants that mimic the effect of methamphetamine. So there, there's medical use, even though we shouldn't use them for medical stuff, and the, and the concern of those drugs. But when we get into things like hallucinogens, when we get into things like ketamine, like ecstasy, like LSD and psilocybin, there's been a lot of, of evidence and a lot of studies that show these things when used in a clinical setting alongside regular therapy can do a lot to rewire our brain for all sorts of things for smoking for depression for insomnia for PTSD there's a wealth of information that shows these drugs can be very useful and the big hurdle to them being studied in a more mainstream situation is the scheduling we talked about at the beginning of the show because they're not ac accessible for testing so we can't test on them to prove that they need to be descheduled. Again, another vicious cycle. But I wanted to make sure we were all aware of that. There's a reason that a few states have legalized, particularly psilocybin, for its, for its mental health purposes. Psilocybin, along with marijuana, are some of the oldest drugs that we've done as humans. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion that a lot of people who have talked to God in times of yore were probably under the under the influence of either psilocybin or ergotamine, which is the natural version of LSD. It's type of bread mold, if I remember correctly. That was also probably a reason that there was a lot of the witch burnings because people were eating tainted bread with essentially LSD and then because of the misogyny of the time, we're like, that woman's the devil. So 
but to bring it back so yeah psilocybin in particular is what i want to close out about and i'm going to read to you from a treatment or not a treatment from an article from johns hopkins school of medicine titled psilocybin treatment for major depression effective for up to a year for most patients study shows published on february 15th 2022 quote previous studies by johns hopkins medication medicine eh, Previous studies by Johns Hopkins medicine researchers showed that psychedelic treatment with psilocybin relieved major depressive disorder symptoms in adults for up to a month. Now, in a follow-up study of those participants, the researchers report that the substantial antidepressant effects of psilocybin-assisted therapy, given with support of psychotherapy, may last at least a year. That article goes on. Quote, a report on the new study was published on February 15, 2022, in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Our findings add to evidence that under, carefully, under careful controlled conditions, this is a promising therapeutic approach that can lead to a significant and durable improvement in depression, says Natalie Gukasian, MD, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She cautions, however, that the result we see are in a research setting and require quite a lot of bit of per preparation and structured support from trained clinicians and therapists, and people should not attempt to try it on their own. So, Johns Hopkins is obviously a very well-respected institution, medical institution, and I think that we need to definitely consider maybe they know what they're talking about. And that was just one study out of out of many. I found a whole bunch. I thought about quoting the actual serious scientific papers and stuff, but I honestly didn't want to download and then skim through a bunch of PDFs. So on the off chance that anybody from the medical community is listening, stop putting them all in PDFs. Just publish them on the web, damn it. So, but yeah, there's a lot of potential use for for magic mushrooms, as they're called, I can speak from personal experience and say that, yes, they do rewire your brain. So I've had good, good experiences with that type of therapy alongside regular therapy, and I have done quite a bit myself alone, but that is something I came into relatively well prepared. Like, obviously, you don't want to just eat a quarter bag of mushrooms for the first time having never done them and have no plan or anything no support structure no safety net any of that but if you are familiar with the inner workings of your own mind already it can be a transcendental experience to take these certain substances and be able to view yourself from the outside in and see see what you need to work on and see the barriers that are holding you back so it's something we really need to continue to research into and fund, and I like how the culture is going on that subject as well. So, the last thing I want to talk about, because we kind of segued into psychedelics, was I deliberately held off on doing any type of psychedelic until I was a grown man. I knew that I came from a place that had a lot of hidden trauma, a lot of issues with myself, a lot of depression and despite the fact that things like psilocybin can help with depression again if you're not into a controlled atmosphere it can be damaging 
you can deal with things that you're not prepared to deal with and that can definitely affect you but i was always told before i'd ever taken a hit of lsd that you will you will not be the same after your first trip and that's the truth like when you trip it rewires certain neurotransmitters in your brain it opens up trains of thought that you didn't currently have available to you so it definitely changed me first time I had ever done that particular substance was shortly after some major events in my life and one night I managed to process a whole lot of very horrible things that happened to me and the only reason I was able to do so was I had two good sober friends there with me who were willing to help talk me through things and guide me through things. So that was really my first exposure of hallucinogenic therapy. And and I'm a fan. I think that we could all probably benefit from the occasional microdose. So, yeah, so drugs. That's, that's, that's what I got to say about drugs. Again, want to do a future episode. We will talk more about all this stuff. I I spent years talking about this stuff exclusively. My first podcast was 100% a marijuana propaganda and culture podcast. So it's a subject I really like revisiting. But next time I revisit it, I'll probably have some friends on, whether they're recovering addicts or, I I guess, people in recovery. Or maybe get my lawyer friends to come tell me why I shouldn't be saying all the things I just said. So, speaking of lawyer friends, I spent some time yesterday with Amy from These Are Bad Movies, and we were running some tests so that hopefully we will be able to do phone calls. We are still working on that. But once I get that system set up, I'm really stoked because I will start being able to have a lot more guests because all my buddies don't want to drive to my studio. You slackers. It's a lot more fun in person. I'm just saying. I got a nice yard. I got a fire pit. A little screened in porch. Come meet the kitties. Yeah. Stop being a slacker. Make the drive. I make it every day. Anyway, (laughs) you're listening to Red Leg Revolution, a show about community. You can find us online at Facebook and uh, YouTube at Red Leg Revolution. We're on Twitter at Red Leg Pod. I'm pretty sure we got an Instagram. I'm not sure. I really need to get a producer to help me keep up on this stuff. Not to mention check the audio as it's recording instead of me having to go back and check it. If you want to help support the show so that I can get like a webcam and start doing the occasional video thing for y'all, you can find us either at Anchor FM. There's a support tab. You can become a one-time donor, monthly subscriber, and I also currently have a Patreon at Red Leg Pod. There's exclusive content going up there, and will be even more the more people that sign up. So, yeah, check all those out, and help your friends with drugs. Like, this could be helping your sober friends stay sober. This could be kicking a nug to a homie who ain't got none. So, Just do what you can to help each other out because, after all, our only hope is each other. And fuck Harry Anslinger, prohibition making bald headed son of a bitch.
This has been a production of 419 Media.